I will read 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 until the end of the chapter. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a suckling, sucking lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from, the, from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So ends the reading of God's word. And what do we know about God's word? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word, and we ask that you would speak to us this morning through it. Would you humble us before your grace? Would you open our ears and our hearts to receive your word as it really is, the very word of God, not the mere words of men? And would you help us to return to you with all of our hearts? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The passage immediately before this, the, the, the chapter 7, verse 2, ends in a fairly curious fashion. Um, chapters 4 through 7 of 1 Samuel tell this story of the ark, this unhappy story of the ark being captured on, in the battlefield at Ebenezer in chapter 4. And you remember in chapter 5, the ark was behind enemy lines, wreaking havoc on the Philistines and on the Philistine gods. And in chapter 6, which we looked at last week, <clears throat> the Philistines decided to send the ark back to Israel. They wanted nothing more to, be, to, to have to do with the ark. It was afflicting them with this plague. And so they sent the ark back uh, on a cart with two milk cows. And the, and the cart and the ark made it to Beth Shemesh. And there they rejoiced exceedingly. They offered sacrifices but then they were afflicted, and so they sent the ark over to Kiriath-Jerim, 
where there was a young man by the name of Eliezer who was consecrated as a priest to stand before the Lord and keep the ark. And it was a happy ending to this story, uh, this unhappy story of the ark, or at least it seemed like it should have been a happy ending, which is what makes the end of uh, chapter, chapter 7, verse 2, so curious. Because what it says is, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They lamented after the Lord. Now, kids, if you don't know that word, lament, that means that they were exceedingly sad. They mourned. They grieved. They wept. They ached. And they lamented after the Lord. Why? If the ark had come back, if the Philistines had been plagued, why would they lament? Well, I think the answer is quite simple. In chapter 4, they cried the glory had departed from Israel because the ark was captured. But now, even here in chapter 7, the ark had returned, and yet the glory had not yet returned to God's people. And so they lamented. Dear friends, we need God's glory and God's power. With God's glory comes with his presence. And where his presence is, where his glory is, there is power. There is majesty. There is uh, hearts that are changed. There is God's power working. And without his power, without his glory, we have nothing. We can do nothing. We have nothing. I don't know if you've noticed a disconnect or a difference as you've read the pages of Scripture and you've looked at the work of the church in the pages of Scripture versus what you experience through the church today. Where are the, the, the stories of the Lord adding to their number daily, of, of, the, um, of the, the adult conversions, the, the baptisms of sinners entering into the kingdom of God? Where, where are the, even if we look at church history, where are the revivals, the thousands of people, the multitudes hearing the word of God preached? What's, what's going on? Or even if we think about it from an individual level, and as you read through Scripture and you consider the lives of some of the primary characters in the Bible, yeah, there are people just like us with sins just like us and uh, mistakes, foibles, personalities just like us. But do you sense a disconnect between the rich faith that they have, the, the boldness, the confidence to, to proclaim the gospel, a deep joy? And it leaves us asking the question, why? Where, what, where, where is the disconnect? What is the problem? And I will tell you what the problem is. The problem is that we lack an awareness, an experience of the glory of God. Because where God's glory is evident and manifest, hearts are laid bare. There is sinner and saint can help but do nothing but fall on their knees and say, surely God is in this place. 
where God's glory is made evident, the gospel goes forth with power because it is the power of God. But our problem, beloved, is we need God's glory. We need that power that comes with God's presence, and yet there's nothing that we can do to produce it. We lack that power. Well, I mean, the church has tried throughout its generations. You read the pages of church history and an impatience for the working of God's Spirit, and there have been countless times and attempts to stir up revival where the church has tried to create all sorts of means to get to the hearts of people to make them fertile ground for the work of the Spirit. But they were ultimately ineffective. In the church today, we come, try to come up with all of our different means to try to grow the church, our programs, our, our personnel, our plans. Sometimes ineffective, largely ineffective. We can't produce it. And that's kind of what we saw in chapter 4 when at the battlefield at Ebenezer, the Israelites wanted the ark so that they would have the power of God. Well, really what we saw there was probably more along the lines of what our heart, where our hearts really are, is that we want the power without the presence. We want the results without the relationship. But beloved, the power of God comes with the presence. With, it, is, it is from God himself. And the results that we long for come from the relationship with God himself. But if we need that, if we want that, we desire that, but we can't produce it, what are we to do? How are we to proceed? Because God will do what God will do. And Samuel tells us in this passage what we must do. We must prepare for God's presence and plead for God's presence because God promises his presence. And that's what's here in this passage. Now, when we look at the, the preparation that is required, there is a passive preparation and an active preparation. And what I mean by that, first, passive means it's not something that we do, but something that God initiates. It, it is active on God's part. It is the longing of lament. It is the longing of lament. And that's what we saw at the at verse 2 of chapter 7, these 20 years, they are longing, they are lamenting for the presence of the Lord. Now, our God is a covenant God. He has entered into covenant with his people. He has promised, I will be with you. But he has also said, you must be holy, for I am holy. And he says that he cannot dwell in among a people who was unholy, and, and God, the Israelites had taken his presence for granted. They had disregarded his holiness. And so God withdrew his glory, withdrew the, the, the presence of his, his glory and his power from his people. And this was an act of grace, beloved. God withdraws himself sometimes from his people as an act of grace. And I say that for two reasons. First, God would have been justified. He would have been just to wipe out his, the people of Israel. They had sinned against him. They had turned their back and followed other gods. But he didn't. He withheld his hand. He just withdrew his glory and his presence. But even further than that, he was, he was gracious to them because he gave them 
a longing, a lament. He helped them to see their need for him. They yearned for him. Their throats became parched with a lack of his experienced grace. And they lamented for him. But that passive, that, that, that desire led into his call for active preparation. And at just the right time, God sent Samuel to preach a message of repentance. Now, it says, uh, we don't know what Samuel was doing for those 20 years. It may be that where this, what, what we see in verse 3, uh, Samuel's call to repentance was actually his, the, the theme of his sermon over the 20 years he was making his way around Israel and preparing them, calling them to repentance, or maybe it was just this one time. The point remains is that God, through his appointed prophet, called his people to repentance. Now, kids, students, repentance is such an important part of the Christian life that we need to understand it. In fact, we could say we, we have no salvation apart from repentance. It is that necessary. And repentance is often misunderstood. Repentance is much more than simply saying, I am sorry that I have done something wrong. That's a part of it, but it's much more than that. I think a good definition to understand at a high level what repentance is, is what Samuel calls it there in verse 3. He says, if you are returning to the Lord, returning to the Lord, that is the heart of repentance. We can see what that means in three simple points. First, it's returning to the Lord. So first, we have to understand it's an acknowledgement that we are away from the Lord, that we have sinned against him, which means we need to hear him speak through his word. We need to admit that this is God's word. It means that we have to examine our own hearts and then we have to acknowledge that we have violated what God has said. That takes humility. That takes a, a unique brand of humility that the Spirit of God produces. It takes humility to listen to another source of authority besides our own hearts. It takes humility to admit that we need that authority. It takes a humility to examine ourselves against that authority. And then it requires the humility to admit that we have broken it. That's the first part. But the second part is we must confess with our mouths. It's not enough to acknowledge in our hearts that we are sinners in general. We need to see specific sins. And it's not enough for us to just say, yes, I admit that in my heart that I've broken that law. We must confess it with our mouths. And the reason because we're returning to the Lord. Our sins are against the Lord. We are returning to him. He wants to hear us admit to him what is in our hearts. It is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. If we are unwilling to speak to the Lord and say, Lord, I have sinned against you in this way, we can question whether our, our repentance is genuine. And confession is hard. There's a, there is a big step in going from believing it in our heart and then saying it, that we have actually done this thing in the hearing of God or another person. And it has to be a particular brand of confession. We can confess 
and not be sorry about what we have done. A true, genuine repentance is a confession that grieves for what we have done in breaking fellowship with God, that we have, we have offended the Almighty. We can say, well, yeah, I ate the last five cookies, and they were delicious. That's a confession. That's not true repentance to say, I've done what's evil in your sight, as the, the psalmist says. So we admit, we confess, but the third thing is that we return and we change our behavior. It is, we don't just stop sinning. We don't, we don't cease sinning and then there's, there's inactivity. We must turn from sin and turn to righteousness. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So the third part of repentance is turning from our sins and turning to righteousness obeying the Lord from our heart. And all these things we see in Samuel's call to repentance. He says, first, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, basically, here's the test. If you are genuine in returning to the Lord, here's what you must do. Put away your foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. This was a specific call to repentance on a specific sin. They had intermingled. They had taken on these foreign gods. They had worshipped falsely these other gods. And he says, put them away. But don't just put them away. Direct your heart to the Lord. Their hearts had been led astray. He wanted them to return with their hearts and direct them to the Lord. Center their hearts and their lives and their minds on God and God alone. But repentance, beloved, is... The whole self. It's not just something in our head, not some, an emotion that we feel, but it is also worked out in our will. It is, it is returning and doing what he calls him and says, serve him only. If your heart is with the Lord and solely devoted on him, you will serve him only. And then a promise, he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And they, they heard it. It says they, they, they put away the bells and they serve the Lord only. Now we might stop there. I mean, there was a call to repentance. The people clearly repented. They changed their behavior. They directed their heart back to the Lord. And yet, the Lord doesn't stop there. Samuel says, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. And it might be hard for us to grasp this, beloved, but... Repentance is not merely about individual persons repenting to the Lord. That is certainly a necessary part of it. But we are a united people, and we can have sins of a people, and the people must repent. God's people, there, there, there are sins of the corporate body that separate us from experiencing this power of the glory of God. And so he calls all of the people together, and he says, I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and they engage in a number of acts that demonstrate their heart contrition, their, hum, their humility, and their repentance. The first is symbolic. They draw water, and they pour it out before the Lord. This was a symbol that they were drawing deep into the cisterns of their hearts to draw out these sins and pour them out in confession before the Lord. It was a symbol of their humility. Then there was, they fasted this sign of their self-denial before the Lord that they were calling upon him in humility. 
And then finally, not just symbolic, not with just actions, but with their mouths. They confessed. They confessed. They said, we have sinned against the Lord. So there was change of behavior. There was confession. There was humility. But then the the text says, and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. I mean, yeah, we know Samuel's a judge, and we know that they're all at Mizpah, but why is that there? I will tell you, beloved, because Samuel, as God's appointed prophet, appointed priest, this mediator was called upon to judge their repentance to see if it was genuine. Beloved, God's word is, tr- is true, and it speaks of counterfeit repentance and genuine repentance, and all that matters is genuine repentance. Counterfeit f- repentance is worthless. Second Corinthians chapter 7 speaks of a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow, and it says, and P- Paul's saying that worldly sorrow leads only to death, but godly sorrow leads to repentance, which re- leads to salvation. So Samuel, who was called to call them to repentance, is now called to judge them. Judge their repentance. Is it genuine? He's the mediator. Well, in the middle of this tender moment between the Lord and his people, this time of humbling, all of a sudden the the Philistines come and interrupt the story. And understand, beloved, that God's word is historical. These are events that really happened. But also remember that this is God's story. And this interruption of the Philistines is intentional. Because do not forget, the Israelites were not the only ones that were afflicted by the Lord. Do not forget that the Israelites were not the only ones who were crying out to the Lord for deliverance from God's affliction. The Philistines had been afflicted by God. Their cry went up to heaven, it said, but their solution was to get rid of the ark. They wanted nothing to do with it. They had a a worldly sorrow. The question is, did the Israelites have this same worldly sorrow or was it a godly sorrow that they had? Was it a true lament that they had lost God himself or was it merely that they were unhappy about their circumstances like the Philistines? And indeed, we can detect a difference in their heart, a humble difference between what was there in chapter four. In chapter four, they were demanding they said, demanding success, demanding victory. And they said, get us the ark that it may save us from the hand of our enemies. But here, they're pleading. They're humbled. And they go to Samuel and they say, Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us. That he may save us from the hand of our enemies. They were humbled. It was true, genuine repentance. And yet, notice the Lord didn't yet act. They were not yet reconciled to the Lord. Beloved, we need to understand this clearly. We must prepare by repenting before the Lord with genuine humility. But our repentance, that work of repentance, does not compel God to do anything. God will do what he will do in his timing. We cannot compel him, even with our humility and our repentance. We must do those things. 
but we are at the mercy of God Almighty. And in this case, God had not yet acted because the reconciliation was not done. Their sins had not yet been atoned for. They had repented of them, but payment must be made. And so Samuel judged their repentance as genuine, and he took a lamb, and he offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Their sins were paid for. They were now reconciled to God. They had returned to him, and now God's glory had returned. God's ears were opened to their cries. He was ready to act, ready to save. And it says, and Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. The Philistines started to attack, and the Lord thundered against them and threw them into confusion. And Israel routed them and defeated them. And what's more, beloved, I hope you didn't miss this. The Lord restored to them everything that they had lost. Talks about all these cities in verse 14 that the Philistines had taken. They were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. Beloved, do you know that that is the way of our God? God may withdraw, he may take away, that we might return to him, but he restores to us everything in, in abundance, even more than we could ever ask or imagine. That's what our God says. He promises. Nothing else, it's the, the beauty and the glory of himself and his presence. And to put an exclamation point on that, Samuel does something that's fantastic. He, uh, after the fighting's all done, he takes a, a big stone and he sets it up. And he, you see what he calls it? He calls it Ebenezer. Ebenezer. Not the Ebenezer where the glory had departed in chapter 4. This is a new Ebenezer. And that name is significant. In Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, she said, There is no rock like our God. And what does Ebenezer mean? It means rock of help. And he says, I'm naming it Ebenezer because till now the Lord has helped us. Till now. Ebenezer. And here's a sign to remind us of God's grace. And it's till now, beloved. Do you, do you see that? Till now. Yes, that, yes, the Lord helped them by thundering against the Philistines. And yes, the Lord helped by calling them to repentance. But do you see how the Lord helped them by developing this longing and this lament? Because they were, the condition they were in before chapter four was unsafe, unhealthy. They were muddling along, dividing their hearts between foreign false gods and the almighty God. They put themselves in the place of God's wrath. And yet, he led them to repentance. He led them back into his presence, into his glory, and to his might. And beloved, the greatest need that you and I have, the greatest need the church has, is the glory and the power of the presence of God Almighty. And that is why Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ came as the, the incarnate glory of God. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. 
But have you considered how that glory came through the preparation of God's people? You read the, the pages of the Old Testament. We, we studied the story of the Old Testament and the New Testament in youth group this year. And the, the end of the story, it's a story of God's, un, or, or people's, God's people's unfaithfulness, their unholiness, their wickedness. They're turning away from God, and yet God's enduring faithfulness. And they were unholy, and yet and God withdrew. He sent them into exile. He withdrew his presence. And the, the end of the Old Testament is this lament, longing for where is God? Where is his voice? Where, where, where are you? And just the right time, God sent John the Baptist. And what was his task? To preach a message of repentance. He came to give a baptism of repentance, proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And it was into that, beloved, that the Son came. The Son of God come, came to reconcile us to God so that we might be able to return to him. He sought us out so that he might bring us to himself. And he offered himself as the atoning sacrifice. Not a, not a lamb from the flock, but his very own self. The very lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on that cross, God placed our sins while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And while we were yet sinners, God thundered his wrath upon his son and defeated us in him. But God accepted his sacrifice. The Lord Jesus was given a back for the life that he, what was taken from him, was given Abundant life, an eternal life, an immortal life, an indestructible life is what our Savior received. And he, he's been given honor and glory and power and strength and all authority over heaven and earth. And do you know that even now, like Samuel, he is crying out for you and me. He's crying out for you. He's crying out for this church He's crying out for the church throughout the globe. He's crying out that the Lord would send his glory and his power, that his kingdom would advance. The Lord is hearing him because he was found faithful. But beloved, we must be ready. This is the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is in Jesus Christ. Let me ask at an individual level, do you know this power of the glory of God in your own life? Is the power of the gospel evident in your life? Has it transformed your life? In order for that to be the case, beloved, God must help us. God must do the work. He has done the work in his son, Jesus Christ, but he must help us. And perhaps that means that he leads us through a time of longing and lament and dryness. 
Have you sensed that? That emptiness? That lack of power? Have you ached for it? Have you longed for it? I hope so. Because Jesus Christ said, Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be satisfied. God will do it. But when we have that hunger, when we have that thirst, that dryness, that lament, beloved, we must pass on the path to his presence through the ravines of repentance. And so I urge you, beloved, if you will return to the Lord with all of your heart, put away your foreign gods and your Ashtoreth, not Baals, not Ashtoreth, I will say to you, put away your gods of self. Put away your self-indulgence, your self-serving, self-centeredness, self-judging, and all the sins that go along with it, beloved, and turn to the Lord with all of your heart and serve him only. Let him be your all and your center. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow your Savior who denied himself for you. Don't merely honor the Lord with your lips while your heart is far from him. Return to him, for he has redeemed you. And turn to him not just for his power, not just for his peace, not just for his salvation, not even for eternal life, but turn to him. Because these things are in him. Don't go for the blessings apart from the blessor. It is in God who is our all in all. It is in him that we have these things. And do so, beloved, not with lip service, but genuinely and sincerely because God knows our hearts. Samuel judged Israel. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the righteous judge who is seated on his judgment throne. And he judges justly and righteously. And he discerns the thoughts and intentions of all. You can't fake it. Return to him with genuineness, with full heart. But know this, beloved, Jesus Christ, there is no more atonement that needs to be made. Jesus Christ has already offered himself, and he, your Savior, is crying out to the Lord for you, that you would repent of your sins, and you would turn to the Lord with all of your heart. I plead with you to do this. Turn to him to be saved, and in view of his mercy, offer yourself as a living Sacrifice. Offer your lips as a song of praise, a sacrifice of praise. But also, beloved, let's ask, where is, where is the glory in the church? Where is the glory in this church? Because repentance, beloved, is not merely a series of persons, but a people. So we must return to him. If there is no glory in the work of this church, why is that? do Do we realize that apart from him, we can do nothing? 
Is it that we've grown indifferent to the glory of God? That we, we just don't believe that God would visit us with that kind of power and that type of glory? Or is it that we're just trying to, they're too busy trying to produce results by our own means? Is it just about getting the right programs or the right personnel or the right practices or even the right preaching style? No, beloved, no. We will see the glory of God. It is, is when we, the glory of God shows up when his presence comes, when God's people prepare for him and plead for him. Are you pleading that God would show us his glory? We must lament and long for God to show us his glory, to visit us, to work through us, to demonstrate his power and his majesty and his might. Because apart from him, we are wasting our time, beloved. We are play-acting the Christian faith. We need God's glory. And so, beloved, may the Spirit of God work in us individually, but together as a body. May we cast aside our pragmatism and our materialism and our workaholism and our... all, all those other things that just seek to please ourselves. And let us seek his glory. Let's plead for his glory. Let's prepare for his glory. And please, beloved, cry out with me. Oh, Lord, show us your glory. So that we might glorify him and enjoy him and make his name glorious. Beloved, let's pray together. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for doing the things and forgetting you, for seeking to do what you call us to on our own strength, in our own way, for our own benefit, our own glory. Oh, Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to please you. Would you please visit us with your glory? Would you show us your majesty and your might? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.